Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, uh, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hi there. Welcome to session 113 of Selling the Couch. Uh, I don't know why I did that, but um, hope you're having a great start to your day. Today's podcast conversation is a pretty cool topic. And I know that it's a topic that many of you guys have thought through and are trying to figure out, which is this idea of going from a solo practice into a group practice and the challenges that come with that and sort of the the practical logistical things that come with that. So example, how do you figure out office space and how do you go about finding clinicians that are good fits for your practice? If you want to interview them, which is a good idea, of course, what do you ask in the interviews to make sure that they're a good fit and that they align with your values? My guest today is Allison Pigeon. Allison is out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So she told me not to say Lancaster, which is normally how I pronounce it. Apparently folks in Lancaster say Lancaster. So I'm an official Lancasterian. But uh, she has built a very successful practice here and actually in just two short years where she went from a solo practitioner all the way to now having five total clinicians in her practice, including herself. And it's just an amazing story of, I think, courage and of resilience and just taking a bold step when uh, there's just a big part of you that says, oh my gosh, I don't know if I should be doing this. Before we get to today's podcast conversation, again, I just wanted to thank the folks at Theranest for supporting this month's podcast episodes. Theranest is uh, easy to manage and just reasonably priced electronic health records to help us manage case notes and take care of all of those things online so that we don't have to figure out and navigate uh, with files and all of those things. You can find more information at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Theranest. And that link, if you guys want to use it, actually gives you uh, 21 days free and then 20% off the normal pricing for the first three months. So here's my conversation with Allison Pigeon. And you can also find show notes to today's conversation at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 113. Hi, Allison. Welcome to Selling the Couch. Hi, Melvin. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. You are a very busy person, and you're doing a lot for the community that you where you work, and um, you're expanding your practice and doing all of those things. And looking forward to hearing your wisdom and sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, thank you. I wanted to just start like at a kind of a big picture level. What inspired you to think about creating a group practice as opposed to just staying solo? Right. I think there were a number of things that I realized once I got into solo private practice. One is that it was kind of lonely and that I missed, you know, kind of having coworkers around to talk to. Another one was, you know, I had come from a background of working in community mental health where I was actually the director of an outpatient clinic and I really liked my role as the boss. Um, I know that's not something that everybody loves to do, but I really enjoyed managing my staff and having those interactions with them and looking at things at more of an administrative level. So I felt comfortable in that role. And so it kind of made sense for me to go expand into the group practice. And of course, there's a lot of financial advantages too. You know, if I go on vacation, my income is not going to be as significantly impacted because I have other people still in the office working. So there's also a lot of advantages in that sense as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like there's just some really practical things, right? Of one is like, I feel like many of us have struggle with that isolation when we start in private practices. And then there's also just the financial aspect, which again, is like very practical of, uh, you know, we eventually, I feel like, want to get out of that idea of always trading time to create income. Exactly. I know this is something that a lot of folks struggle with, which is how do you shift that mindset from being a solo versus a group practice owner? I think that's a really good question because it kind of comes down to what your vision is for the group practice. And I think you can kind of look at it one of two ways. You could build a group practice where everyone has their own specialty. And so you're attracting lots of different populations, or you could just focus on one specialty. For example, you could be the, you know, play therapy practice in town. And that's all you do is every clinician does play therapy. So I think from that point of view, you have to make that decision. And then from there, figure out, you know, how do we start talking about we instead of I? And a big part of my role, too, is sort of talking up my clinicians, because I'm pretty well known in the community now, because I started out as just myself. And now I have to be mentioning, oh, yeah, well, Melissa does this really well. And Whitney does this really well and not talk about myself so much. Actually, I'd rather they get clients before I do. So so that's been part of the shift in, you know, marketing. And just even when I talk to people about the practice, you know, I'm sure to bring up what the other clinicians are doing and not just talking about myself. Yeah, no, those are really good points. You you mentioned uh, something earlier, which I just think is there's just such a good way of thinking about it of either you want to have kind of a, an all in one practice, right? Or you want to have a specialized practice. And I hope this is not like overly simple, but how do you decide like what, which of those two routes you want to go? Yeah, I think that's really tough. I think there's a number of different factors that you have to take into consideration. You know, for example, if there's no other practice in the community that has that specialty, it probably makes sense just to have every clinician be doing that specialty Mm. because, you know, there'll be people who want that and they can't get it anywhere else. 
you know, I think for me, it seemed to fit that I was getting clinicians who were doing different things. And I think what made me want to hire them is they were sort of on board with the vision that I had for my practice. And so it made sense from that standpoint to hire them, even if they weren't doing exactly what I was doing. Okay. And then I, you know, I checked out the private practice website and I noticed that you guys primarily focus on working with women, right? But under that is sort of subspecialties. Right, right. So I kind of took... I don't know, the best of both worlds, I I guess you could say, like, I was able to kind of create this umbrella, like we focus on women's issues. But then within that, there is, you know, someone who focuses on dual diagnosis. And there's those of us who focus on maternal mental health. And then I have a clinician who really likes to work with teens. So it kind of made sense to tie it together that way. And it definitely makes us stand out from the crowd to say we focus on women's issues. But then you know, fortunately, we have enough sort of subspecialties under that, that it makes it appealing for a broad range of people. No, I think that's such a a smart strategy, because in some ways, you're both generalized and specialized simultaneously. Right. What's the number one fear that you had in making that transition from a solo practitioner to a group? And I guess more importantly, yeah, let's start there. Like, what's that number one fear that you had? My biggest fear was, am I going to be able to get clients for this clinician? Mm. Because again, I wasn't necessarily full. I mean, I certainly was getting a steady rate of clients, but the first person I hired had a very different specialty. So I had to sort of regroup and think about how am I going to market this person? And am I going to be able to get her clients and keep her happy? Because if I'm not getting her clients, then she may not want to work for me for very long. I think I would be terrified. (laughs) How did you walk through that? Like, how did you walk through that and and I guess trust the process and trust that things would work out? I think what was really helpful is, you know, she wasn't relying on me for, you know, her sole source of income. Mm -hmm. So for her, it was like a very part-time job. And if she made some extra money, great. And if she didn't, it wasn't the end of the world. So I think that took a lot of the pressure off. So I think that definitely helped. But there were many frustrating moments because I was still very much in the beginning of the whole private practice journey where I was like, her schedule's empty. What do I do? You know? Yeah. So it's it's almost the pressure, I think, of you trying to get your own caseload while also trying to help her grow hers. Right. I have no idea how you walked through that with the, you know, (laughs) but I think you said something which is like key. I guess looking back, do you think it sounds like it was a good idea when you were hiring that first clinician to make sure that they had some other income source coming in as opposed to them solely relying on you. Cause I would think that would probably, I would imagine that would add extra pressure for you and it would probably like, they wouldn't have as much grace or flexibility if, you know, for those first several months, if it was really slow. Right. So I think that once I hired my second person, she actually wanted to work for me full time. And fortunately she worked at an agency where they sort of slowly let her, decrease her caseload while she was building up her caseload with me. And a lot of her clients followed her over to my practice. So there was a lot less pressure in that situation too, because she already had folks who were following her. So we weren't necessarily totally starting from scratch. So, and by that point I had a much better handle on like what types of marketing things work and what doesn't work and all that kind of thing. Yeah, And offhand, not at all to put you on the spot or anything, but like, 
just thinking through that, like, what do you think were like, I don't know, the, the top two marketing kind of things that, that seemed to work? I definitely think networking has always been great for me as far as if that, you know, whether that was with therapists or, you know, doctors or whomever it made sense to network with. You know, we do take insurance, so we get a lot of referrals from insurance companies. And now that we've been here for two years, we get a lot of word of mouth referrals, which is awesome. What did you find was the most, so you've done a couple of hires at that point, right? And then you've done several more hires since then. How many clinicians is it now? So including me, there's five. Yeah, so that's what I thought. What did you find was like the most effective way to find these other associates that you could add to the practice? What's interesting about that is that it seems like there was a variety of ways that I found different people. The first person that worked for me actually had worked for me at the community mental health clinic. And then the second person I found was just through word of mouth, like another therapist knew that she was interested in leaving her old job. And so she said, you know, what do you think about, you know, interviewing this person? And then one of my other clinicians found me on indeed.com. I had ran an ad And then my other clinician, again, word of mouth. And then the other one just saw the sign outside (laughs) that I was here. And she just contacted me like, do you have any jobs? (laughs) So, yeah, really a wide variety of ways. (laughs) No, that's that's cool. I mean, I do think there. it sounds like there is this one common theme of just building those relationships in the community and and how strong that is. Even if you don't end up uh, hiring or working with that person that you've built the relationship with, they inevitably may know someone who makes sense for you to work with them. Right, exactly. So I imagine this has probably evolved over time, but when you get kind of a, you know, when folks that are interested in working for you, they reach out to you. I imagine you have some sort of a screening or interview process. So what does that process look like for you? So this might be really unusual, but what I do is if we talk on the phone for a few minutes before I actually decide if I want to have them come in and interview them, and I tell them all the bad parts about the job, and then I see if they're still interested. (laughs) So I basically say, like, these are all the things that kind of are deal breakers for some people. Like there's no benefits. You know, you're a contractor, you have to pay your own taxes. You know, there's sort of very little direction for me as far as being your boss, because you're an independent contractor. So you can do your job how you see fit. So kind of just letting people know that up front. And if they want to go forward at that point, then it's potentially a good fit. And if they don't, then it's better to know that while we're still on the phone before we both, you know, wasted each other's time. You know what, for me, like when you said that, and obviously I didn't know you did that, but like there's a transparency to that, you know, you appreciate because I do think, I mean, I think all of us, many of us struggle with this is we want to highlight all of the positive qualities that a business has and we kind of want to hide, you know, maybe the right. the kind of the day-to-day struggles and things you got to figure out. How do you think, like what made you decide to present in that way, I guess <laughs> is my question. <laughs> Yeah, so I think part of it is that, you know, I have very little time to devote to work. I don't know if that's exactly the right way of saying it, but I have two little kids at home. So really, I'm only in the office like four to five hours a day. And so I just feel like any way I can sort of maximize my time and be as efficient as possible is really important. So, you know, I just feel like it's important just to be a straight shooter and just figure this out ahead of time before I waste my time or their time. No, it's a good way of looking at it. I, I forgot what 
book I was reading recently, but they talked about like that time is our most valuable asset. You know, I think sometimes many of us think, you know, it's other things like finances or all the other things, but like time's that one thing we can't always get back, right? Well, we can't get back. So, uh, yeah. And so it's like, I think you're setting those clear boundaries and setting expectations because yeah, let's say it's somebody that's not a good fit comes in and then you end up trying to screen them for an hour, right? But that maybe means that now what do you do, you know, when are you now having to go home later or, you know, like not spend time with the kiddos and all of those things. Yeah. So once I figure out if it's potentially a good fit, I have them come in for an interview. And I think one really key question to ask is obviously you want to know about their clinical skills and if you can sort of assess, you know, how strong they are clinically. But I think the other piece of it is, especially for me, is how good are they at managing those other pieces that are more like administrative or just time management or getting notes done on time because I'm not in the office all the time and I don't want to have to babysit my employees. And so, you know, those are things that I just expect are going to get done. And I don't want to have to chase after people, you know, to say, why aren't your notes done and all that kind of stuff. So that's something that I make sure to ask about, like, how are you with getting your notes done on time? And do you think you could manage your own schedule and all those kinds of things? I would imagine sometimes there's a disconnect between what folks say and what they may do, right? Like folks present themselves in an overly positive light. Right. Uh, how do you sort of address that? Like, Yeah, so good question. I always get a list of references and I call the references and I ask them that question specifically. Like, do you know if they ever had problems getting their paperwork done on time and those types of things? So I feel like people, you know, obviously interviewees can pick who their references are, but I feel like people have been pretty genuine with me on the phone when I have called to ask those questions with giving me an honest answer. Yeah, no, that's a great idea to bring other folks that have worked with that person into it. I think one, it just also benefits the person because it gives them like, it gives you a more robust understanding of the person. And then maybe there's always other folks can see things about us that we may not see in ourselves. Exactly. So you are hiring out, growing your practice. And now there's like some very practical and very like logistical things, right? That have to happen, which is like bigger office space. How do you accommodate who gets what room during what hours? All of those things. Like, how did you walk through that? Yeah. So what happened was I had rented just a single office. And then when we were starting to outgrow that, then I was looking at, well, what should we do now? Because, I mean, there's only so many hours in that one space that are available. So fortunately, uh, space down the hall became available. That's two offices. And so knowing that I was going to move into that space, I hired two clinicians at the same time and got them all set up with, you know, getting them in credential with insurance companies and all of that and almost started like advertising them before we even moved in. So that way, when we did move in, we could kind of hit the ground running. But definitely, there's a lot of growing pains with expanding, you know, I had to buy new furniture and you got to put down the security deposit and all that kind of stuff. So It was definitely, you know, we grew so fast that I think a lot of that stuff was probably maybe exaggerated or it was more emphasized than it normally would be if you kind of maybe took two years to grow instead of decided in three months you were going to grow. I don't know. (laughs) Right. I mean, it gives you more, you don't have as much flexibility to like think through some of the stuff. It's kind of more just kind of react, I would imagine. 
Yeah. So it was actually a very short amount of time that I found out the office was going to be available and I could move into it. I mean, like a month or six weeks or something. So yeah, it was quick. You said there were a lot of growing pains, which I think is just, it's so wonderful like to hear you say that because I feel like for any small business, I think we all want to get to the final destination, right? And just have this amazing small business. But the reality is every single person has to go through these growing pains, right? So how long did do you think it's taken you like realistically to get to where you are now? Well, really, it's been two years, which I think is pretty quick. Because in you know the 2016, the business grew by 400%. And for a while, I didn't know up from down. <laughs> Just now trying to straighten out like, okay, now what are we going to do in 2017? You know, even though we're already three months into 2017, I'm a little late to the game. But yeah, I was just kind of like getting my bearings from everything changing so fast. And I mean, it was all great, but it, it was a whirlwind. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it sounds whirlwind is probably uh, an understatement there. Yeah. Just really random. So you said getting them credentialed, the insurance and all that. Did you end up hiring someone to help with that? Or how did that? Yeah, I do that all myself. So when I had left community mental health, I did that for myself. And then I realized like, it's not really that hard. It's just a matter of filling out a bunch of paperwork. But everybody's paperwork is basically the same. So if you have information for one, then you have it for the other. So it wasn't any big deal. And then, you know, once you get to become a group, then it's much easier to add people because you're already credentialed as a group. So it's a much shorter process just to say, oh, hey, I want to add this person to my group. My last question is, if you could have a conversation with the younger Allison of two years ago, I guess, <laughs> you know, that was still a solo practitioner, but you were thinking about, you know, jumping into group practice. What's the number one advice that you would give to that younger Allison? I think I would tell her that it's going to take longer than you think it is. That's a great piece of advice. I've been, you know, this month I'm reading the book Essentialism. So, and one of the points he makes in there is, anticipate how much ever time you think it's going to take, like add 50% more, you know, like we have a tendency to <laughs> underestimate how much time something is going to take. So, right. Yeah, I think too, like, I maybe in a very naive way had this figure in my mind, like, I'm going to get to this amount of money that we're going to gross per month. And then I'm just going to have it totally made. Like, I'll just be able to sit back and like, watch the money roll in or something like totally unrealistic like that. And I got to that point and then I was like, wait a second, this isn't anything like I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it brings its own so, things to yeah. the challenges and things, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So you said it was not what it was going to be. So like, I guess what would be like a, I don't know, a challenge that's come up that maybe you didn't anticipate? I think the one thing that I didn't realize was that, you know, I thought when we hit that certain figure per month that a lot of my income was going to be like my own salary was going to be coming from the money that the contractors were bringing in. But, you know, when you take insurance, the profit margin is pretty thin. And so one of my, I guess, values as a boss is that I feel like my contractors should get paid well for what they do and they work hard and they you know, went to school and did all the training and have experience. And I feel like it's important to compensate them well. And so, you know, at the end of the month, after I pay myself, there's not a lot of money left. And a lot of my salary still comes from seeing clients, which isn't, you know, necessarily as much time as I'm seeing clients as I would like to spend. I'd like to spend more time working on the business, but that's not, you know, how the numbers are shaking out right now. So... 
I'm glad you said that because I think growth brings its own challenges. And I think, I mean, I think we develop the resources and the resilience to be able to handle it. But I think just thinking that uh, growth is going to just uh, like get rid of any of the the challenges, it's kind of, a, I don't know, it's, it's not always the best way to think about it. Right. I wanted to just wrap up you and Joe Sanok. You guys have been collaborating and you're thinking a lot about uh, doing a mastermind together. And uh, tell us a little bit more about the mastermind and also tell us about your private practice as well. Sure. So yeah, Joe brought me on as a consultant for practice of the practice, which is really exciting. And he just recently came up with this idea of forming these two mastermind groups. So one is for folks who are making under 100K. Maybe they're just in the beginning stages of private practice. And then a group of people who are over 100K. So they figured out um, on some level how to scale and probably have similar issues or challenges that they face. So definitely, you know, my expertise is in helping people figure out how to grow from a solo to a group practice and how to add insurance to their practice. So I'm going to be helping him out, especially with those two areas for people in the mastermind groups who are looking at those two issues. So I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be really cool. Awesome. Uh, Where can folks find out more information about the mastermind? You know, I think it's so new that I don't think Joe necessarily has a web page up yet about it. But certainly, if you're interested, you could email him, joe at practiceofthepractice.com. Sounds good. And then I know Joe's usually on top of it. So he'll probably, I would imagine, on if you just go to practiceofthepractice.com, I'm sure there will be some kind of a, a blog post or a serv- under the services section. I'm sure. Allison, tell us more about your private practice as well. Yeah. So like we had talked about, we sort of brand ourselves as a women's focused practice. And so it's myself and four other clinicians and we all have our own specialties and we share these two offices. We have a little office suite in a building that's kind of out in the suburbs and there were no other private practices or no other mental health services really in this area. And so when I was looking at moving into this building, I thought, well, this is either a really dumb idea or a really smart idea because no one else is here. (laughs) But it turned out to be a really smart idea. So we have lots of people from this, you know, kind of neighborhood in this area seeking services here. So that's really exciting to see. And it's just been a great experience. I love coming to work and I love working with my clinicians and helping them troubleshoot problems. And I feel like we have a good dialogue about what's working well and what's not working well. And we collaborate with each other. And I just really enjoy, you know, coming to work and having those interactions with them. That's awesome. And you're in Lancaster, not Lancaster. (laughs) Right, right. And so you'll fit right in when you come visit, if you say Lancaster. Right. I'll be like, you know, my natural, I guess, what's the phrase? Lancasterian? I don't know. Yeah, Lancastrian. Lancastrian. Oh, who knew? Yes. Thank you so much for doing this. And, you know, I'm grateful for, excited to see your growth and and grateful that you're uh, starting to serve our field in in a new and different way. Oh, thank you. I love what you're doing with the podcast. Hi there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Allison. And I hope that it gives you some new ideas, especially if you are making that transition from being a, a solo practitioner to starting your own group practice. 
Allison mentioned a number of resources and uh, just a number of tips, and you can find those at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 113. Allison also mentioned that she and Joe Sanok from the Practice of the Practice podcast, which um, you guys should check out. This is a, it's a great podcast to check out, but Joe was actually on the Selling the Couch podcast on episode 17 which is a really great episode in terms of just thinking about ourselves as private practitioners. But they're actually, as Allison mentioned, they're uh, starting a mastermind and, and they also created a free download for us. And you can find that at practiceofthepractice.com forward slash group practice. And that's actually a pre-launch checklist that will help us go from a solo practice to a group practice. So all of the little things that most of us maybe are not thinking about if we do want to make that transition. You know, I think the biggest thing for me from this episode that I was just taking away is that, and Allison was like hinting at this several times, and which is that if you start a business with the sole intent of generating income, right, at some point, that sort of loses its luster. But if you start a business with the perspective of wanting to serve and wanting to make, and in what you're doing, making the lives of others easier, there's something just much deeper to that. And I personally feel like those are the businesses that are much more longer lasting. I love how Allison employs that same mindset to working with or as she hires out clinicians that, you know, she takes, she gives them more, right, than a typical practice would because she realizes that they work hard and she values their work. And I genuinely feel this, which is that if you take care of those who work for you, whether it is another practitioner or a virtual assistant or an office business manager, then they'll do good work for you. So at least that's what I've, I'm slowly learning with STC. So as we wrap up again, I just wanted to thank the folks over at Theranest for supporting today's podcast session. Um, I was actually looking at the Theranest website recently, and they've just got a number of like just cool features, I think, that, that come with their uh, private practice management software. And one of those is add the scheduling and appointment reminders. This is something that is so practical. So clients, once they've scheduled with us, right, it gets put into a calendar. So you can actually track attendance based on the number sessions, but these clients can also get appointment reminders via voice calls or email or text message, which is just I've learned um, that's just a small but a critical kind of piece to reduce those uh, no-show rates and improve attendance. So um, again, you can find more information about Theranest at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Theranest. And uh, that link again will give you 21 days absolutely free. So you can just try it out and check it out. And then um, if you do decide to stick with them, they even hooked us up with the 20% off uh, the first three months as well, off normal pricing. But you have to go through that um, that link that I sent you um, just so that they can realize it's uh, coming from our community. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And uh, and again, if you want to learn more about Allison and the work that she's doing in the world and her practice, you can find that at moveforwardlancaster.com. Have a great rest of your week and take good care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com.
So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.